Welcome to episode 395 with my guest Beth May. We're going to talk about uh, electroshock therapy, also known as ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and we're going to talk about her experience with that. Um, my name is... I'm right out of the gate. Every time, drop the ball. Sorry, it's my podcast. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Right now, I'm having the one about being incompetent. A uh, place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that does not suck. Uh, the Twitter handle you can follow me at and Instagram is mentalpod and uh, mentalpod.com is also the website. You can go there. You can check out the forum. Lots of really friendly people in the forum. Very supportive. Um, fill out a survey. We have about a dozen different surveys where people reveal their inner lives and big part of the show is, is reading those uh, on air. And uh, you can support the show by going and um I'm not going to read all the all the ways you can support the show, but you can do it financially and non-financially. And uh, a really simple way is just subscribe to the show. Um, then it downloads. It's there. There's a chance you'll listen to it more often. And the more listeners we have, the more advertisers we uh, we draw. And uh, it's easier to keep the, the show afloat. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. Give us a review on iTunes. That's awesome, too. Um, this is a comment that somebody had uh, about the show. Uh, Paul, you talk about the abuse your mother put you through repeatedly and at length and to the entire English-speaking world. I'm, I'm unclear. Is there hostility to follow? As you talk about your mother, you seek validation and support and hugs from people. That would be true. You explain why you refuse to be in your mother's harmful president. <laughs> yes, my mother ran for office. She just replaced Trump. Uh, you refuse uh, to be in your mother's harmful presence and want listeners to be on your side. That is true as well. Uh, but I don't think of it as sides. But anyway, uh, this woman talked, I guess she's she's uh, referencing uh, episode 283, Covert Incest by a Mother. Uh, this woman talked about her mother doing absolutely horrific things, uh, and then in parentheses, not a little slap on the ass. Um, and you insist on expressing your empathy and compassion to her mother. Not cool. Uh, before I comment on that one, I want to read a similar email that I got from, from somebody, and then I feel like I can, I can address both of these, uh, things. This person, um, how did he want to be referred to himself? I think, anyway, I, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I've listened to a few episodes of the show and I have to say I'm confounded. I first listened to a couple episodes a year or so ago. I quickly realized wallowing in the misery of others would only serve to increase my own. Schadenfreude is one thing, but this was something different. Like, uh, I can't see the joy to be had at the expense uh, of others. 
sorry, that's not why I decided I should contact you folks. I'm currently listening to the recent polyamory episode. In the intro, Paul quotes someone saying, you deserve love and attention. That statement solidified my issue with this show, quote, therapy, uh, comma, the quote, self-help industry. The problem is they're working with a faulty concept. And if this is the foundation, it seems to be on a ladder be a ladder on quicksand. No one deserves anything except maybe the air in their lungs, but even that has to be earned through the effort of inhaling the breath to stay alive. Everything else in life has to be earned. Everyone deserves love and attention is a dangerous statement. Ideas like that breed entitlement and laziness. You want to be loved, be someone be someone someone can love. Walking through life thinking you're owed something ruins your life and makes people avoid you. I don't know how to finish this message. I hope I haven't come off like an asshole. Um, too late. <laughs> but maybe people need a little less mothering in this world. Uh, Bill Burr quoted some guy from Boston once, Harden the fuck up. Sounds a bit cold, but I don't think enough people have heard anything like that before. It seems our evolution is leading to weak minds and soft hearts. Mother Nature tends to rectify situations like that. Well, the first thought that leaped out to me is, um, you know, when, when I see, for instance, a shooting, a mass shooting, I never think to myself, well, there's somebody that has a soft heart. Their heart is just too soft. But what I do see is a lot of violence around the world with people who have become hardened and bitter and angry. And I'm not saying that that is the case with you, but what these two comments share in common is the idea of compassion and being owed compassion. I wrote him back. I I want to read what I wrote wrote back. Um, I believe children deserve love and attention from the parents who made the conscious choice to bring them into the world. As the child grows, I believe... Uh, the child should take on more responsibility for their actions, and when they become an adult, there's nothing wrong with ceasing contact with that child if they refuse to act like an adult. Hopefully, the parent does it with love and compassion. I would say that perhaps a more accurate word is worthy of love and attention, but more importantly, that giving someone love and attention isn't mutually exclusive of holding them to standards of responsibility and decency. We can love people while also not having them in our lives because they refuse to grow up or act responsibly or show us a baseline amount of respect. That's the case with my mom. I have love for her, but she is a toxic person for me, and she doesn't respect the boundaries, so I cut contact with her. When I sent her a goodbye letter, I told her I love her, which is true, but that it was not healthy for me to have contact with her. And so you can have compassion for the person, but, you know, addressing the first comment, having compassion for someone doesn't mean I'm giving a thumbs up to damage that they may create or responsibility that they uh, won't take ownership of. And this idea, uh, yeah, there are a lot of entitled people in the world. And that is a problem. Uh, And there can be coddling. And I do believe that people need consequences 
But consequences and compassion are not mutually exclusive. And that's, that's my point. Uh, I'm going to read two quick surveys and uh, then we're going to get to the interview with Beth. Uh, but first, I want to mention our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. It's online counseling. I love it. I've used it for a year and a half. And my therapist, Donna, helps me with so many, many things. Um, great feedback from people who have checked it out. Um, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part because then they'll know you came from the podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be 18. This is an awful moment filled out by Claudette and uh, she writes... Uh, listening to the beginning of the January 5th uh, junkie episode, and I had to share a similar experience to yours. Um, my first career job after college, I was invited to attend a small event with my boss and the president of the company on a yacht. There were Oh, and I guess this is this is uh, uh, in relation to her ADD. Uh, there were less than 10 people, and we were having hors d'oeuvres and drinks at sunset. My boss and a couple of others with us had just completed a big project, and this was a thank you. I'm behind the president, grabbing some snacks, and he turns to me and says, So, Claudette, what is next for you? I immediately responded, I think I'm going to try the chicken. My boss choked on her food and giggled quietly. He clearly was asking me about my career path, not my food choice. Way to make an impression early on in my career. Ha ha. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then uh, I got an email from somebody who um, took exception to me leaving the part in on last week's episode where Dylan Brody described um, some of the death fantasies, some of the suicide fantasies that, that he has. And... Um, you know, I wrote, I wrote her back and said, uh, I'm sorry that you had a negative experience listening to the pod podcast and otherwise uh, find it helpful. And I consider editing stuff out all the time, but feel that there are so many things in the podcast that trigger so many people that if I began thinking about what to take out based on what triggers anybody, I would be paralyzed with indecision. And I think the podcast would also lose some of what makes it different, the willingness to talk about the darkest of dark things, because it's so hard to find that elsewhere in a way that isn't exploitive or sensational. So it's not that I don't feel for people who get triggered. It's more of a difficult decision I arrived at. Um, but thank you for, for weighing in. That's how I, I responded. Uh, and then this is a, is this an awful moment? It didn't print out. My printer is acting funny. Um, this is, I guess we'll find out. Oh, it is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, Oh God, can't handle the pressure of deciding. And, uh, he writes about a year and a half ago, I'm sorry, about a half a year ago, my partner of three years and I made our relationship monogamous. Though some people knew, it was kept mostly between us and the people we were hooking up with. A few months after, my friend, who I was occasionally sleeping with, stayed the night at my house. We walked out of my room the next morning for breakfast in our PJs with sex hair, just as we did my dad, stepmom, and uncle, who had no idea my relationship was open, came home a day early from a camping trip. As soon as we all made eye contact, everyone just froze. It was painfully obvious that she had slept over, and I can only imagine how guilty our faces looked. 
I awkwardly introduced her to my family and told her she could go back to my room to avoid the awkwardness. Assuming that their immediate conclusion was that I was cheating on my girlfriend, I decided I had to explain to them on the spot that I was in an open, non-monogamous relationship with my girlfriend, and while I was at it, I told them I was bi, too. After gauging their reactions, I think it might have just been best to go along with their assumption that I was cheating. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with Beth May, and uh, found out that you are a friend of Ashley Birch. I am. I have that honor. (laughs) Shout out to Ashley. Hello, Ashley. Uh, You received electroshock therapy, also known as electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. Uh, How long ago was it? Uh, my first treatment was in 2014 and I've had it sort of in and out, not in and out, but more off and on until a few months ago. I've had 68 treatments. And that's a lot, correct? I I think so. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So, um, we'll get to what it's been like since you have have had the the treatments. Let's start chronologically with your life and your story and your issues and battles. Uh, Obviously, depression is a big one. Uh, Is that the main one, you'd say, in your your life? That's why I got ECT. And then um, I think I, I, I started feeling depressed in high school, and then I didn't have my first manic episode until I was 19. Um. What, what do parents buy a kid for their first manic ep- episode? Um, oh, a stern talking to <laughs> by somebody else called a psychiatrist. Fingers a, crossed. A pink bow on a hospitalization. That's that's, that's, that's great. The, <laughs> um, so, we'll pay for your really expensive prescriptions, Beth. Yes, yes. Um, so you had your first manic episode at 19 yeah uh, but the depression was there in high school yeah in high school i was weird <laughs> um and you know now i have the idea that everybody's weird in high school but in high school the thing is everybody feels that they're the weirdest and i wasn't i wasn't very popular i wasn't very smart i wasn't very anything so i just kept getting weirder and weirder, and I... Can you, can you be specific? And you are 26? I'm 26. Okay. Can you be more specific about what the... 
oh, I would wear really stupid clothes, which I would wear pajamas to school. I would wear weird hats. Like, I dress like a the middle layer of a Russian doll set. It was just, <laughs> <laughs> it was just like weird. And I would pretend to be into weird things like, um, oh, witchcraft or I suddenly wanted to be a pilot because my dad was a pirate, <laughs> not a pirate, I wish, a pilot. Um, and I loved movies. I always loved movies, but I would pick the weirdest movie and say that it was my favorite or something. I would, I would say, um, oh, 1995 the usual suspects only this one character only the like dumb cop eating a donut is my favorite thing so and was this uh because you felt like that was a role that was open in in your uh absolutely and i because what's weird about high school is that i felt so strongly as myself, but I just didn't know what that was. So whatever it was that I was, I felt very strongly about it, but I didn't know how to describe it. And so I would fill it in my identity with this other, th these other things that that weren't me, but it might as well have been because I didn't know who I was. What were the things that you were thinking and feeling that you were afraid to show that were authentic to you? That I that I had nothing to use to go forward in life, that I I knew that I was, I knew that I was kind of smart or something, but I had no evidence for that. All these things that I felt I had no evidence for. Do you feel like you were a disappointment to yourself or your parents? Oh, always, always, still, still. Do you oh. ever talk to your parents about it? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's hard to talk about my, it's hard to talk to a, my dad about it because we um the the relationship dynamic that i have with my mother and my father has always been incredibly different and it switched dramatically once i got out of high school so you know all through my my life i was like daddy's girl um i love that my dad was a navy pilot and he was just sort of um he always felt really ambitious and cool and and he w he was the instigator for all of our like moving around the country and stuff like mm -hmm. that he had cool friends and my mom was a teacher and so she was just sort of the i don't i mean i think i just thought of her as like the family secretary when i was younger and that seems so i realize now just how horribly simple that's making everything about her but now she's absolutely my best friend and my dad and i have i just have this fear and i and i think a fear that even though my father recognizes he can't really explain why it's not real and it's that my dad is not proud of me that my mm -hmm. dad is actually really disappointed in me is it the rather than him expressing disappointment the, it's the absence of his excitement about anything in your life that makes it feel that way? Yeah, or, you know, it's... I'm just assuming that <laughs> no, there's not a no, tremendous I, amount of uh, of uh, enthusiasm about where you're at. 
that's very true and i it's also that i re- i realize now that i never knew what enthusiasm looked like on my father <laughs> before and so when i really needed it like right now and if i share good news about something it's it's sort of like um it's like talking to a wall that nods and <laughs> um which may be sort of harsh but because I, I know that's that he, what my dad was like it was he was a checkbook at the end of the couch that's yeah that's a really good way and I, I knew he loved me he just didn't know how to get out of his head and really connect to another human being yeah and I you know I'm I'm a millennial and we're we, we're very we're so addicted to having a reason for our woes for being able to justify some sort of sadness that we put on live journal or tumblr posts with this actual physical thing and i think for someone like me who was so blessed to have a very normal supportive loving childhood to have no to have no stomping ground to lay any of the the just awful feeling the frustration of yeah, being a human being <laughs> absolutely it's 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 a weird time where you feel like you need that excuse to be sad but you don't have it and so it was easy for me to just be very down on my mother and just be like oh my mom is so mean to me my mom wants me to be just this perfect church going girl and i just want to watch Hugh Jackman movies and was there a feeling <laughs> stay that, up all night? Was there a feeling that if you had become what your mother wanted you to become, you you would have fit in even less at school? I think I would have. I think I thought that I would have fit in more, but I would have felt more like an alien than I already I did. I gotcha. But you know, when I see pictures of like my middle school years, I. You know, I don't even I don't even cringe anymore because it's just such a staple of how weird I was. But I, you know, all these girls in pictures with me, they're so cute, and you know, they're discovering makeup and actually wearing underwire bras. And I'm, I'm, you know, I look like kind of a my hair is the length of like a cocker spaniel's ears and the same sort of, um, you know, just wily mess chocolate on face like a four-year-old but i'm you know in middle school and i don't know it was just what do you owe that to your your disinterest in uh their interests or your lack of awareness i i like the i lack the interest and then i felt that my because of that, I'd fallen so far behind that I could never catch up, that I could never, I, I would never learn how to do makeup. I would never learn how to be a woman. And so... It, and what's that based on? You know, it's, middle schoolers are mean. Middle schoolers are, <laughs> so, middle schoolers would see me and they'd be like, oh, is is Beth even a person? Is Beth a boy or a girl? Is Beth, um, yeah, they, they were just they were like beth is never going to get a boyfriend and stuff like that and i wasn't really thinking about that and so 
to hear that, it made me wonder if I should worry about it. And it was, it was just, you know, it was just feeding into a bunch of other just simultaneously dumb and existential questions that everybody has in middle school and high school. I see. I don't think I knew what depression was until I got to college. Actually, is it cool if I talk about mania first? Yeah, jump <laughs> if I leave with the mania. Mm-hmm. So, when I got to college, I I switched from the whatever I was taking in high school, which I don't even think was, I it must not have been an SSRI mm-hmm. to an SSRI because I think I was getting even more tired or something. And maybe a week after I started taking the SSRI, I I feel like my life is separated between this moment and every moment before because suddenly it felt like a switch had gone off where everything was going to be okay. All of these fears and these sort of anxieties that I'd brought as a an adolescent into college were instantly gone where i had the power and the knowledge and the absolutely the energy to accomplish anything not only anything but right now and i i just let that fuel me for a couple of weeks until it got and got out of control and in, were you sleeping no no i would but it must have felt amazing it, at first it did and the the faster my thoughts got, the more that other people were not able to it's it's like I you know, I would say they weren't able to keep up, but it's it's really that they were unable to pretend that I was making sense. And right. so it eventually got to where the only conversations I could have were with myself and just sort of pacing around and and going from one thought to the next. And that that became a very freaky feeling because when I was manic, I wanted to be around people and I wanted to bring the party. And to, express yourself. Absolutely. And so to have unknowingly and for reasons that I didn't know, I didn't really know what was happening to me. I was, it was making me more isolated. And eventually I... I got the I get I got the I knew that I had to go to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah, just like this and, and where were you in school? I was I was in Phoenix. I was at ASU. Okay. So it wasn't but it it was just in the middle of the night. I so much of all of the bad mental illness I've had in my life has been about certainty. <laughs> So this this idea that I most certainly had a calling at the Grand Canyon, that yeah. I had to reach there by sunrise, even though it was four hours away and it was already the sun was already rising, I knew that I had to go mm-hmm. there. Well, if the world was gonna be okay. You yeah. needed it. You needed to get there. <laughs> I you know, I I think I described it at the time as like a a calling like a like i just sort of felt compelled that a higher power was calling me to the grand canyon but it wasn't it was more like a certainty that i would go it was this this 
idea that something had already been decided. <laughs> and so I started driving and I didn't end up in the Grand Canyon. I ended up in Blythe. <laughs> and so, uh, like six hours west yeah, or something. Blythe is as desert as desert gets. Oh, yeah. Um, and from there, I... And you were lost? I was... I don't even know. I was lost. I was... Or did you just want to set Blythe straight? <laughs> Let them I, know about your idea for an underwater amusement park. I was like, listen up, Blythe. I, I thought it was like Streetcar Named Desire. I would just sort of uh, be the protagonist of the entire town. Um, no, but I slept there, quote unquote slept, um, in my car. And then I drove back and I... From there, all things get kind of foggy because I think I just sort of went down pretty fast, and I was I was lucky to have not been, I was really lucky to have not been arrested or killed or hospitalized during this this first manic episode. But I, instead, I just got wicked depressed mm -hmm. afterward. And well, when not, I was not not being an imposing physical figure and being a white girl. Um, Oh, you can yes. get away with I mean, anything. If you, if you were a black man, you probably would have been shot. I absolutely would have been. And, and so I use that ability to get away with things to sort of justify relapsing into mania over and over again. Because you know nobody's going to beat you down. Yeah, I have a picture of me holding a stranger's aunt, like like boa or something, like python, on in the middle of a street in, in college. And I don't even think it was like a, a commonly college-walked street. So I'm just walking around with a snake that I've stolen. And there's a picture of me. And I'm like... Yeah. Oh, you stole it from somebody. Yeah, I, I said I would take a picture with it, and then I walked away with it, with a snake. And For I, how long did you have this I don't, snake away from this person? <laughs> I don't think it was very long. Okay, and so it I was, wasn't like a day? It was a no, couple of minutes? No, no, no. I was, I was very, very drunk, too. Um, but I, I knew it was long enough that somebody was upset with me. <laughs> the snake might have been upset with me, but I'll never know. Um just yearn for the the cold touch of a snake sometimes who doesn't <laughs> who i mean what is christmas if you don't have the cold touch of the snake some people wrap wreaths and i'm a python girl um right. i i just remember telling well because i i wasn't even seeing a psychiatrist being on antidepressants and i went to the doctor saying Hey, you know, I don't think this Prozac or whatever is working because I had this incredible spiritual experience where I thought I had to go to the Grand Canyon and stuff like that. And so, so my psychiatrist said, Oh, I think you have bipolar disorder because that's what happens when people with bipolar get put on SSRIs sometimes. And so often when I talk to other people with bipolar, they tell me how they they battled with their diagnosis or they didn't believe it for years and they didn't they didn't do anything right with it for years and i was the opposite because i instantly believed it but i had no idea what it meant 
So I, so instantly you finally I, had an identity. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I instantly I was like, "This is it. This I'm is bipolar who, girl." Yeah, yeah. I and was like, it one or two that you were diagnosed with, or was there no distinction made? Originally, it was two, I think. But then once, I I think because I was sort of relaying my experience of mania, they were like, "Well, it's it's type two or something," and then. I was pretty quickly afterward diagnosed with type one. Yeah. Grand Canyon will upgrade you to yeah. bipolar one. Yeah. Like you want to go first class into the psych ward. Um, and so to call myself bipolar and to have bipolar ended up being two different things, radically different things because when I said I was bipolar to, to people, which I did a lot more in college, I I didn't even associate it with the symptoms I was experiencing. I had joined um, the rowing team at ASU, mm-hmm. which is just complete stupid oxymoron of like a desert rowing team. And we had to get up for practice at 6 a.m. And by that time, I was on like Seroquel or something. I, oh my yeah. god! Yeah. So I was, I was, I gained fifty pounds my first year at college, if not more. I was really heavy, and I couldn't get up for a three p.m. class, let alone like rowing team. Rowing so I was, at six in the morning. Yeah, I was cut immediately, and but I, it was just, I sunk so perilously low without realizing that my life was n- not at all a life anymore and it was it was overwhelming how how easily it could happen and how yeah go did ahead. you did you tell your psychiatrist i'm unable to get out of bed i or did you just think did you just blame yourself oh i'm i'm a lazy I, piece of shit. That's not the medicine. I definitely blame myself because and there are two reasons is because I was depressed and that's what happens when you get depressed is you blame yourself. And then I, I hadn't associated bipolar with like a physical thing, which is bizarre because now I, when I think about mania or depression, they barely seem psychological to me. I it's, depression to me feels like just absolute like soul crushing tiredness not the tiredness that comes with accomplishment but the tiredness of you right. know unpacking from a long trip right <laughs> just, I, uh, just look being, at the dishes like how uh, could i possibly do those yeah and and mania to me it feels also very physical just that yes. energy and stuff so, but in college when i was first when I was first diagnosed, I that that didn't seem like a thing. I was like, mm-hmm. it's a mental illness. It's not a physical. Why would I be tired from this? So I thought I was, I thought I was lazy, and I thought that I was, mm-hmm. and my my parents were very confused at this point in time because they just didn't understand how how if I were on medicine, it couldn't be working, or how I could be sort of neglecting to get better (laughs) like it was didn't occur to them that that you might have been over prescribed or misprescribed or something i mean it took me a long time to get anything right medication wise a lot of it is hit and miss apparently it's a lot better nowadays because they can do a dna 
check and, oh. the, and, the, and that helps, uh, rule out certain types of meds so that oh, that's it's, awesome. it's a little less it's like ancestry.com trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> so then what brought about the, um, the ECT? Um, so I, I was, I, I was in and out of the hospital a couple of times in college and mostly for depression. Um, did you check yourself in? Were people worried about you? I think before ECT, I would, I had checked myself in, uh, once and then once my friend had, I think I was in a sort of a mixed, like a dysphoric, uh, mania where it's this incredible, horrific racing thoughts you can hear. I could hear like a dialogue of my own thoughts in against each other and stuff. It was just really Oh, that sounds horrifying. Oh, it was it was just there's there's nothing like it and I say that in the worst way possible. So you have the energy of mania with none of the yeah. exhilaration or fun. It's just It's like somebody it's like your panic attack in your head and somebody else's panic attack battling it out oh in my your God. in your head and knowing that you're never going to get to sleep even yeah, it's Oh, it was awful. And so... It's like dancing with the stars, but with panic attacks. <laughs> oh, man. I Yeah, that's it. And then nobody ever gets voted off or anything. It's just a, uh, in, so my, my, junior, my junior year, or rather like the beginning of my senior year, I had gotten so many... I don't even know how many projects I got done, but it's the amount that in hindsight, when I think about all these things that I did in this one semester, I'm like, how would anybody be able to do that if they weren't manic? And how did I think that I wasn't manic while it was happening? And in my defense, it was a very sort of like hypomanic, mm -hmm. like under the radar mania, but I got so much done, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I wrote a play. I did a short film. I uh, acted in a couple of plays. I got great grades and stuff. So after all those things came to fruition, I I was so depressed that I ceased to be a human being. And so it was months of hypomania or mania, yeah. and then the crash happened. Yeah, and it it wasn't a crash. It was sort of a a glide down farther than I ever thought that I would go. And give me it, some snapshots of it, what it looked like at its worst. I was doing a I was doing a play. I'd you know all they they always say like sign up for things when you're manic, and then you, you know the or it, the mania is the meal, and then the depression is the check. Or <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> um, oh my god, I that's so fantastic. That. I wish I could credit them, but. Um, so the check came, the check yeah. came for this, this great manic meal. And I had already, you know, auditioned and gotten into this play. And I was excited about the, the role until I wasn't excited about anything. And the thought of going to rehearsal was like, if somebody said, Hey, do you want to just sort of like hike the Pacific Crest Trail right now and then with no preparation and you also have asthma or something. It was just, it seems so, it seemed too impossible to even consider. And the idea of, it, it's, 
it's bizarre to think of, but I wasn't suicidal because I couldn't even conceive of like the I, effort, <laughs> the effort, googling. Yeah, gosh, I mean, and so I eventually it was just that I didn't know my lines for this. You know, it, it truly was the the actor's nightmare because I didn't know my lines for this play, and I, I, everybody was like, you can't do that you know because it eventually gets so bad that everybody notices they're just like oh when did beth become a gray ghost person i was really skinny then too i just sort of i was like about 100 pounds and um and so i don't remember how i got into the hospital i think it must have been voluntarily but i don't even remember being there okay and that must have been when I heard about ECT. And one of the effects of ECT is memory loss. Yes. And I, I have to say, you've done an admirable, jo admirable job of piecing things together, given how much of your memory you have lost from yeah. all the treatments you've done. <laughs> well, buckle up. Because I, before I got ECT, I was... I was um, my My boyfriend at the time, Colin, he had seen me through... All of this, he'd see me. He'd see me very depressed, and he'd see me just sort of battling with what it meant to even think about having a normal life and and thinking about just going forward. And then I started getting ECT, and in Arizona they do bilateral ECT first. And so what that means is the electrodes they're shocking both sides of your brain essentially, and it's the most quote-unquote effective form of ECT, but it's also the one with the most side effects. So, for example, in California, they'll only do um, unilateral ECT unless your case of depression or mania is so severe that you have to do bilateral. In Arizona, it's not like that. They'll just go right for the bilateral. And honestly... This, and they do it out of the back of a truck. Yeah, it was, in, it was in like a portable next to the hospital. And... It just seems so sketchy, but that's sort of the 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 state of desperation that I was in, and you know, honestly, that my parents were in by that point because I I didn't even you know mention that, you, but they were doing stuff like my dad would have to come up and get me from Phoenix from Tucson um, in the middle of the night because I would suddenly just be I would panic, I would have panic attacks that would last weeks and stuff like that. And oh just, my god! And and. By that point, I it was just like they were always scared of some sort of call from me, and any call could have they could have gotten any call, whether or not I was alive or not, and stuff. So, I I realized it had gotten that bad, but now I don't remember like the the sort of narrative arc of how everything fell apart and. So Colin would take me and and my parents would take me sometimes too to get ECT, uh, electroconvulsive therapy. And it started out three times a week. And I felt better pretty quickly. And that's one of the benefits of ECT is that, you know, if you're really, really friggin' depressed, it it works quickly. It works much faster than... An antidepressant, which can take six to eight weeks, yeah, or twelve I, weeks sometimes. Gosh, even. yeah, but I, I remember feeling better pretty soon, and 
because of the stigma of ECT, I was, if I wasn't ashamed to talk about it, if I, if I felt comfortable talking about any mental illness with somebody, then I, I felt comfortable being sort of an evangelist for ECT. I, mm -hmm. I felt comfortable being like, hey, I know that there's this stereotype that like Francis Farmer and uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest does ECT, but this has really helped me. And this is something that I feel is a godsend. And then when it started not becoming a godsend, I still called it a godsend anyway. And Why? I, Why? Want, I want to be clear that I do think that it saved my life, but it was... I don't even remember when I started noticing that my memory was damaged. That, that makes sense. <laughs> so um, up front, you got all the benefits of it. You got the meal and then the the check, though. Yeah, and it, the the weirdest part is that I, I you know, f Facebook tells me like, oh, eight years ago today you said this dumb thing, and I remember a picture that came up on my Facebook a few months ago where. It had been clear that I'd been getting like ECT for a month or so, and how often? Three times a week, okay. and by then, I knew that my memory must have been really damaged and really just sort of pieced together. But I was still very much like proclaiming this to be because I didn't want I like you didn't want to believe that you, it had harmed your memory. Hell no. And I I didn't want it to believe that it had caused any harm if it caused any good because I've been so fed up with taking one medicine and then combining it with another medicine and then I I took a medicine called Geodon and I got a serotonin syndrome. I, f I felt like I was going to die and I it just like these all the medicines up until that point just felt so stupid and felt like they didn't work or that they made me too tired. And so to have this one thing be less holy than it felt when it first started helping me, that was awful. That was inconceivable to me. And so I had to keep sort of playing up that it was just so pure and in its goodness and its help so it's not that you regretted doing it it's just you didn't want to speak aloud the truth that there was this big side effect yeah and it, especially because of of the stigma of getting it in the first place there was there was this inherent bravery i felt this this sort of like noble act of me talking about how this helped me and that I felt like I was perverting it by saying oh by the way I I f forget people's names if if I've known them for four years or something I I'm asking my boyfriend what his name is and he's driving me home and I'm the during ACT they do they do try to really mark your cognitive just because they know that this is a side effect and that it's it can be a bad one and so they um they do this this test and it's like four different categories and honestly the the, the worst irony here is that I remember taking these stupid tests more than I remember any part of my life during this period of wow. time. Because it's they'll do stuff like they'll ask you to spell world backwards and they'll ask you to um, to draw a clock and then make the make the time say 9.45 or something and draw a lion but say it's a giraffe. It, just these little tasks 
to test you cognitively that don't change. And so eventually I got really good at spelling world backwards, but I was forgetting actual historical events in my life. Like had I met this person, had I taken this class, I don't even, I I would forget entire classes. Would it sometimes come back the memory of something? Yeah. I, I describe it now as, um, is like knowing you've read a book, but just or knowing you've seen a movie. And sometimes, if somebody says, "Oh, yeah, yeah," um, wasn't that the one with the Jamaican bobsled team? Then suddenly you can think of like, "Oh, yeah, that's that's a cool. wonderful life." <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool running story. And and so sometimes it's like that, and sometimes it's like. No, maybe I saw that on a DVD display case in Blockbuster in 1995, but no, I can't remember that at all. And there's, it was especially devastating to me with Colin because he would say, all right, you know, it's weird how you forget how, how much you, how much a day is spent reminiscing if you love someone like you just to have that companionship part of it part of being friends with somebody part of loving someone is saying oh, do you remember this great time we had just the other day that was so funny how so and so said this or i had a great time doing this or and when all of that goes away it's you have no context for whatever relationship you're in at that moment. It's like you're on your first date. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like... <laughs> at least for one of you. <laughs> but it, it's it's all of, the, all of the uncertainty of a first date with somehow the intimacy of a marriage. <laughs> and, wow. That must have been heartbreaking for him. I... I don't know how he he's one of the strongest best people I know and he's to this day he's one of my best friends but now we've been he lives in New York and we've been friends longer than we were together because it was and it didn't last obviously no. you know, the relationship with him and no. how, how did you what was the the final straw this is I didn't remember this being the final straw until, until you know, a year ago or so. Because mm -hmm. we, we didn't talk about the end. We just talked about funny stuff that happened during it and during the relationship and stuff. And, and, and sometimes he would just talk about things. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he knew that I didn't. But I was uh, – I remembered – he went on a skiing trip with my family and we, we were so excited because we hadn't gone skiing in a while. I hadn't gone skiing since I was a kid. And I was saying, Hey Colin, do you remember when we were driving home from that ski trip and we saw the, um, the, the really big vulture circling outside the, the car window. And he said, yeah, that was the worst car trip of my life. And I was, I said, why? That was a great trip. And he said, do you remember that you broke up with me on that trip? And I didn't. And I, that is such a horrific thing to do, to break up with somebody on your family's... But I... While a vulture is circling. I, th I think that was after. You know, like, yeah. it, it's like whoever I was, <laughs> I wasn't even able to wait to break up until we got out of a, 
out of an enclosed familial vacation trip situation. And what hurts the most <laughs> for me, I know tons of stuff hurt the most for him, but what hurt the most for me is knowing that I was that person. That whoever whoever person broke up with Colin on a family ski trip, that was me. And I'm still that person, even if I wouldn't do that now. So all these things, while I was, while I was with him, I suddenly felt like my, my life was not my own, that I could be told that anything happens and that it wouldn't be true or that these things that I did didn't belong to me anymore. That's terrifying. Yeah, it was, it was not only terrifying in the sense that I could be convinced of anything that I had, because I mean, it's, it's not like anybody I loved or anybody who loved me would sort of gaslight me like that. It's that I had no, I had no internal consistency of who I was. We, you know, the sort of, we become ourselves every day and we, we are ourselves every day, but sometimes I just didn't, I didn't know who that was. I couldn't remember days and days and days and days on end. And these important things that had shaped my life, because it, it ended up affecting both before and after, I mean, they the, were just gone. And the irony, too, that your struggle as a kid was finding an identity yeah. for yourself. And then here it is being eroded from external circumstances that you needed to do to survive. Yeah. Do you, it, do you ever feel uh, physically cursed? No. I feel... I still feel guilty. Why do you feel guilty? <laughs> and I, the reason I ask that is because I often feel cursed. Like, like, well, this is working now, but it's... This isn't gonna. Oh. This good part is not is I, is not gonna last long because something always gets shit on. I yeah. I think I'd use my the word body doomed. always lets me down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd use the word doomed, not curse. Oh okay. Because oh yeah, cursed. I didn't mean like magical <laughs> witches. I just <laughs> I mean told you like, I was weird in high school. Um, yeah. I when I've been suicidal, the again, even like mania, it's. It was never the the impulse to want to do something. It was the certainty that I would. It was mm. it was that even if I didn't want to kill myself, because I didn't want to kill myself, it's that I knew that I would kill myself. I see. And it, the worst part is like not knowing when it would happen. <laughs> it was just like I know that some. So <laughs> there, outside is absolute darkness. I'm just not ready to get out of bed to face it. Yeah, yet. and it was. I always feel guilty that I that I couldn't catch it early enough or that I couldn't use my my in between my my normal phases to better myself so that this wouldn't happen again. Catch what early enough? If I if I was in a stable mood, I felt I felt even then guilty if it changed and so as if it was your fault yeah and i mean sometimes it was sometimes i would go off my meds sometimes i would sort of um 
self-sabotage and by way of drugs and alcohol and sex and all of that it it was just a piece of this larger issue where i i i thought i wasn't doing enough which is it's crazy because i i i i did so much that i lost my memory <laughs> i i and and you are putting the pressure on yourself of dealing with a mental illness and expecting to have dealt with it quote unquote perfectly which there is no there it, the very definition of mental illness is that it impedes areas of our lives to the point where we need external help absolutely and, and that is being so hard on yourself to yeah um said the pot to the kettle <laughs> i so, you know f- flash forward to now living in la i've been here two years and the first year i was here was actually was actually pretty good and um or the first six months rather and i had a, a manic episode in january 2017 and i was hospitalized and i started ect again here um, and how many treatments had you had prior to that? 30, 38 of bilateral treatments. And then I've, I've gotten like another 30 or so here. And was the memory loss from the second set as bad as the memory loss Not at from all. the first? No. I, I was, when I found out that it was the difference of bilateral and, and unilateral, I was kind of horrified. I was like, I had no idea that this was an option when I first started getting ECT. And that is fucked that they didn't tell yeah. you that. And because I remember once I knew that I was losing my memory and because I couldn't even keep words, I would be, I would just feel like such an idiot in class where I'm trying to think of a name or trying to think of a simple word like dog. And I just wouldn't, it wouldn't, it, it just wouldn't come to me. And so I, I was literally on, Alzheimer's medicine in Phoenix. I was on Namenda and I was on all these these medicines to make me remember things that I just couldn't. And so switching to unilateral here in LA, it it went really smoothly and the depression lifted or the mania well, didn't come back. The depression lifted, but there's that weird they always say that if you if if somebody's lost if somebody if there's a death in the family so don't you know you can you can express your condolences immediately but go back in six weeks or so because that's when people have sort of drifted off they're not thinking about you anymore and I think the same thing applies to hospitalizations and depression in general because yeah there is that sort of traumatic immediacy of being in the hospital and there is that sort of really dark attention given to depression when it's at its worst worst but the whole year after that i was i was so depressed without knowing that i was and so i was working three days a week at um at you know at, at where i work and so i had tuesdays and thursdays off and i would tell everybody hey i'm I'm, you know, I write, I, I, I write on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I didn't do jack shit. I was in bed 
and, and I somehow had legitimately convinced myself that, well, you know, I'm, I'm lazy, but at least I'm not depressed. Like I was, you know, a couple, couple years ago or something. So I had just completely fallen into this, this, this lie. And, and, and is this after the second round of ECT? Yeah. It, I mean, it was, it was during, so it was. Were you making progress at least? Yes, yes, yes. And, and were you letting them know, hey, I'm, or I guess you, because you didn't think it was depression. Yeah, I didn't. You I, didn't, couldn't give them the feedback of, hey. No, and and there were other, you know, I, I felt like I was getting, because I was getting better. I was, I kept getting better and better and better. And it wasn't until just, you know, last until December of last year where I feel like I woke up and I wasn't like six months ago. Yeah. We're recording right now. It's uh, the end of uh, June yeah. of 2018. 2018. So who knows? <laughs> um, but I felt like I was, I woke up a different person. I felt I was more clear than I'd felt in years. Cause I, I think about college and it's, it's a blur. I know everybody says that about college, but I just it's it's a blur that I can't even can't even decipher what it was before I got smudged. I, it's just so much of it is gone, mm. and so so much of people who I valued, people who I respected, are gone or don't don't know how much I care about them because I can't remember the best memories i have of them what's that like for for them and and how do you explain that to them um like somebody comes up to you excited and you don't there are times that you don't know the face or the name yeah yeah and i i i say every time i'm so sorry and i but it it's always a little too much just unless i know them well enough to i it's always too much to be like, oh, and you know, as you know, I've lost a year of my life from electroconvulsive therapy. It's like taking one stigmatized thing and then like stacking it on another and another. So it's like, as you know, I have a mental illness, oh, overshare. <laughs> and then, as you know, I've received electroconvulsive therapy for this mental illness, but oh, how, overshare. <laughs> but how do you know who to share it with if you don't recognize Gosh, the person? It's... It's sort of like I use the comparison of an actor's nightmare, but it is. It's like going in and sort of improvising your the level of intimacy you have with a person based on their reaction and got you. the people around you and stuff. So, it, and it, she's referencing a play by Christopher Durang that that is. I thought it was just a. I mean, I I know the play. Right, but, isn't it Christopher Durang? Yeah, that wrote it. And yeah, a guy wakes up on stage. And he is in a play that he doesn't recognize. Yeah, which I is, I just thought of it as because I get the dream all the time, and I get the dream about school too, where I'm going to a test and I've never studied for it, and I've never even been in the class, and I just thought that, that was the general <laughs> phrase. I it, so some people I can I know that they know that I've gotten electroconvulsive therapy, but I don't even know how they know it, and they so and. I, especially moving to LA has been bizarre because primarily my narrative memory, like events has been affected. But also what I struggle with is remembering sort of procedural things, like how to, how to drive to this place or 
and it's hurt me a lot in work because people will be like, oh, this is how you, you know, log this submission. This is how you, you bind this paper, use this machine or something. And it, I'm either writing it down, which looks weird. And they, they're like, why, you know, it's simple. Or I'm the one who's like, could you teach me this again? Could you tell me this again? And it's, do you ever share with them why? I did when I first started at the company that I work with now. And I've, that was the biggest mistake I've ever made. Why? <laughs> the person I told it to, it's been, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I don't have like a persecution complex so much, but I just can, I feel very much that it's been used against me because, um, I feel, I feel as if I'm I'm not I feel I'm treated as fragile because and that it's not a reflection of necessarily the the treatment but it's I think it's hard to conceive of a smart person losing their memory like that but it happens and so I think it's very easy for the person who I'm talking about to be like, well, she was probably an idiot before. That's why she can't remember how to get to this airport or whatever. So obviously it depends greatly on the person. And it, yeah. I, I think it, I think it says a lot of about people's sort of empathy when they do believe that this has happened to me. Um, but Honestly, it's like depression. It's if somebody hasn't had it, it is it's possible to explain it, but it's not as possible for them to really connect with it. And so it's you know, it's it's describing a color that they've never seen. Yeah. Um so I feel very much like I'm behind intellectually or something in my in my job and just generally speaking because the worst part is you know to romanticize however smart or however great my memory was or however however great my the work i did in the past was it doesn't matter because i can't even remember it so it's wow so there is this sort of question of like was i ever good at this or did i just pretend that i was or will it ever be like this again, where I could do good work and remember words and describe things accurately? Or is it just that I thought that that's what I was doing when I couldn't remember anything? And has there been an improvement in things coming back to you in the last six months since you, or since your last treatment? Or is it are you just kind of level from where you are from your last treatment? I feel I feel pretty level in terms of memories and stuff like that. When I when I got ECT here, it didn't affect any of the memories I had already lost, which mm. but um a weird thing to celebrate, but I so primarily my memory loss occurred around like 2012, 2013, 2015 even. And so the last, you know, from 2015 on, I remember things pretty well. And the 
the only lasting memory deficit I have is that sort of procedural how to do things or if somebody has told me something. Mm-hmm. I can remember things that have happened to me, but I can't remember really things that I've I've said or things that people have said to me or it's it's almost like a kind of more insidious way of forgetting things because it does it does very much mimic the like forgetful person who mm-hmm. doesn't care. Whereas, you know, when it was happening in Arizona, it was more obvious that something else was going on. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? Oh, I, I have two <laughs> questions. How long does a session take? Does it hurt? And uh, are there cookies? Um, Cookies? No. Um, you just forgot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, yeah, that's the... That's the big punchline. I I remember there being like biscuit things, but I don't know how to describe it. It's it, you really know, well, yeah. It was like the, something like more expensive cookies or something. Like when you when you're at a f- fancy your friend's house yeah. or something, they're like, "Do you want these?" Oh, I know there's like Tim Tams from Australia or whatever. Oh my God, but these, I was just kidding. Oh no, yeah. no, this is a serious. This is a serious thing. But okay, so ECT itself, it's so quick you they they put you out um they have they have to stretch they have to strap you with all sorts of uh electrodes and um and they put a a, a blood pressure cuff on your calf because the, your your foot your right foot is the only thing that's not paralyzed because um they have to they have to make sure because you're getting a seizure in your brain mm. um and so they, you know, they, and you're unconscious. Yeah. 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 Point. They put you out. They, they, they give you anesthesia and they paralyze you too. So the only way that they know that the seizure seizure is working is if your right foot is moving. And, um, so you're out for like a half hour, but the procedure itself only lasts about five minutes. I see. So, I, you know, you wake up and always cold because that's what happens when you wake up from anesthesia, just like freezing cold. And, um, it would, when I got bilateral, it hurt my jaw a lot. It would make Mm -hmm. me get headaches and stuff like that. But, um, really as far as side effects go, physical side effects, it's really negligible. There's just not not too much it it looks much scarier than it is and stuff mm-hmm. i remember you had to get um i mean before you can get ect you have to be sort of put through these tests to make sure you your body will handle it and i remember when i wanted to get ect in la i i couldn't even i had to make appointments to go you know get like an ekg and stuff and i'm like i don't have the energy it's not worth it and it was just like this this completely the, the irony. Yeah, and I, I remember I had to go get like a consultation with uh, these doctors who were in charge of the ECT department at UCLA, and so I had to get a consultation with them, and they're asking me to do these stupid cognitive tests that they asked me to do in Arizona, where it's like draw a, co- a clock and spell world backwards, and what's the what's the president before Obama, and just all these simple things that I 
couldn't do at that point because I was so depressed. And I remember feeling embarrassed because I was, I was like crying in this office. Like, I'm so sorry that I can't do these things. And, and he says, they're like, okay, yeah, no, that's okay. Cause you need ECT. And it all just came back around because it's whether or not my cognition is damaged from being depressed or getting my brain shocked. Cause I, you know, that's another thing about depression that people don't really mention is that you're just so stupid all the time. So foggy. Yeah. Decision making is difficult. Um, yeah, it just distorts everything. Yeah. It's like a fog. Um, but you can't drive while you're getting it three times a week. Can't, can't drive or make big decisions, which is a sort of a broad thing, but, um, it's (laughs) shockingly easy. (laughs) Been, been waiting for that one. I'll interview. Well, Beth, thank you for sharing all of this stuff, um, especially in such detail and being so honest about your feelings uh, around it. Um, I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you letting me come on. Thank you. A lot of interesting stuff about, about ECT. I had no idea that it could have such effects on the, on the memory. Um, I mean, what I did, I think, was a lot more fun is I just smoked a lot of weed in high school and uh, that seemed to have done a number. And I got I to listen to a lot of classic rock. So if you're gonna if you're gonna smoke your memory, do what I did. I so want to go erase that moment right there. Oh, the critical part of my brain is so tiring on some days. Uh this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Amethyst. She doesn't uh say how old she is, she but she is gay. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Never been sexually abused. Uh, she has been emotionally abused. My <clears throat> my father was the most manipulative liar I've ever met. Every time I talked to him, he was trying to twist my mind. I'm not sure if it would really count as emotional abuse, though. What an example of the lengths we will go to minimize what we experience. And this isn't to punish her father. This is to give weight to what she's feeling so she can process it. <clears throat> Uh, any positive experiences. He was my father, so whenever I think about the various things he did wrong, I feel guilty because I'm obligated to love him. I think we're obligated to try to love people and try to have compassion for them, but ultimately, the feelings that are inside of us are inside of us, and shaming ourselves for a feeling not being there um, is, is not the way to correct something. I think just trying to grow as a person and have more understanding of the different people that walk the earth and trying to put yourself in their shoes. Um, But judgment is so, uh, God, it's just the first place our brains go to when anger and fear come up. I know I do. Darkest secrets. I stick pins in myself and occasionally cut, but my biggest issue is my brain. I never feel real. 
and I always feel disconnected. Sometimes I feel like body parts are ten times smaller than they actually are, even though I know that is impossible. I tried once to talk to a therapist I was sent to in the past about this, and she immediately shut me down before I could tell her anything other than I don't feel real. Uh, My first thought is that is a horrible therapist. Uh, And my second thought is, um, again, I am not a therapist, but I have heard other people describe this, um, and I've heard uh, there are disorder called disorders called uh, depersonalization disorder uh, derealization disorder and people describe exactly what you felt and i encourage you to go back to therapy and find someone who can deal with uh that from what i understand that is a form of dissociation and and ptsd uh now i could be wrong But I did cook chicken on basic cable for 16 straight years. And sometimes I would hold up a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese and endorse it. And I think that gives me a little bit of authenticity and gravitas. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've never been interested in sex. I can get turned on and want to fuck, but honestly, I'd rather just take a nap. (laughs) That should be a t-shirt. We can fuck, but I'd rather take a nap. That that is, I'm going to guess that this person is in their 30s or 40s because that is the hallmark (laughs) of the aging libido. Um... I want to tell my family how I really feel about each of them so they actually know what I have to say and will listen. You know what would be good too? Actually, probably better than than talking, saying how you feel about them is talking about how you feel around them, you know, without kind of taking their inventory, but saying that you feel, you know, instead of saying you never listen to me, say... I feel invisible. And then the pressure isn't on them to try to defend who they are. You're you're opening the door for them to come empathize with you. And whether they do or not is up to them. But it's something that I learned way too late in life. And it really helps me dealing with, with people when there's conflict. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I haven't said everything I want to, even though I know I wrote too much. You did not write too much. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this was just an excerpt from a um, the babysitter survey, and this uh, woman uh, who refers to herself as impeccably inadequate uh identifies as pansexual, uh, was a victim of sexual abuse, never reported it, and was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, She's in her 20s. And she wrote, um, when she was babysat, she felt nothing sexual. uh, And when she was the babysitter, she felt a little something sexual. Uh, She writes, nothing happened. I remember being a teenager watching a baby boy for the first time and being fascinated by his penis. I didn't want to do anything inappropriate or to hurt him, so I ignored the feeling until it went away. I figured it was healthy curiosity. 
And then to the question, remember these, remembering these things, what feelings come up? Uh, she wrote guilt, shame, and anger. And I, two things I wanted to say about that. Number one, I was curious why there was anger. Was it anger at herself for having feelings she didn't want to have? And were they the past feelings or is it the present day feelings as she looks back on it? And the other reason I wanted to read that is it's such a great example of the disconnect between what we know is uh, intellectually true, but what we feel emotionally about something. It's like she knows, and she writes, no damage was done, nothing happened, it was merely thoughts. So she knows that it was healthy curiosity and it was just in her mind, but she feels guilt, shame, and anger. It's just fascinating to me, the disconnect between the intellect and the emotional. This is an awful moment filled out by Poison Ivy, and she writes, One day I was having period cramps, and I whispered out loud to myself, Ugh, I'm going to start my period. My seven-year-old son was on the other side of the room, and he responded with, The period of life where you start to die? He's going to be a comic. Thank you for that. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Fuck Tom Cruise. Uh... And he writes, called an Uber recently. The driver showed up and I instantly recognized him as the boyfriend of a neighbor woman whose apartment I once broke into 11 years earlier. And then a parenthesis, just to sneak a peek at her bed and smell her shoes and underwear. I wish none of this were true. I hate who I've been. I'm less than thrilled with who I am today, but I no longer break into neighbors' homes. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, the important thing is, is that you saw that there was a problem and that you don't do it anymore. And I, I don't know what it was that you, you do, uh, to help yourself if you, uh, were able to stop doing that on your own or for you, you sought help. But, um, that, that is an awful moment. Thank you for sharing that. Um, actually, I remember being in college. And in, in my dorm room, you know, there every dorm there would be a laundry room. And I remember sometimes uh, girls would, would uh, go down there, they put their laundry in. And I remember sometimes like having the urge to see what their underwear looked like. I never did it, but I, I you know, we're curious about other people's bodies. I think the, the thing is, is what, what is it that we do with it that, that matters? And, um, if we see that there's a problem in our boundaries, then address it or get help if we can't address it on our own. I hope I'm not coming across as pompous and uh, lecturesome. Is that a word, lecturesome? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Corn Bunny. He is uh, straight in his 20s, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, he was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was between the ages of four to seven, I was sexually abused by my brother, who was seven years older than me. At the time, I didn't know how awful the things 
that we were doing were. Whenever we were home alone, we would become very physical. We would both get naked and fool around with each other in our parents' bed. At the time, I would look forward to it because I enjoyed the way it felt, and I also enjoyed the physical closeness to another person. Now that I'm older, I am horrified at the things that we did. I feel disgusted by myself, and I hate myself that that happened. I know that I was very young and didn't know better, but it still doesn't change the way I feel about it. Again, a great example of the disconnect between the intellect and the and the emotional. Um, any positive experiences with the abuser? Uh, I work at a school for children with special needs. I very deeply care about my students and would hate to see any harm come to them, but the thing is that sometimes my students can become physically aggressive towards me and other staff, and I'm tempted, tempted to hit them back so they know how it feels to be hit. I could never do that to them because I care about them, and I really enjoyed my job, even though it can be difficult at times. So I think he misinterpreted uh, that question and was writing about him being an abuser. Um, or thinking about it. Darkest Secrets. When I was around 9 or 10, I sexually abused a child that was about 3 years old. I was over at the house of a family friend, and somehow we ended up alone in a room together, and we were humping each other until the moment I orgasm. Like me, when I was younger, he didn't know what was happening, and he wanted me to keep on doing what I was doing to him. Now that I'm older, I see how horrible... Uh, the thing that I did to him was. That was the only event that I ever sexually abused a child, and I feel like a monster for doing what I did. I regret it so much. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having a woman put me down emotionally, telling me that I'm worthless or that I am good for nothing. Also, for her to have control over me, not just sexually, but in my everyday life. I don't know why, but having someone control me is a big turn-on. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I want to be happy and I want to have friends. I don't have a lot of friends and I spend most of my time alone, so I would wish for companionship and friendship. Have you shared these things with others? I feel sad for things that I have done and where I am now. I really want things to be different, but I don't know how to change them and I feel so powerless. Uh, anything you'd share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, ask for help because people really, truly care about you. Well, I hope you apply that to yourself and I hope that you, um, get help if you're feeling stuck and powerless or caught in the shame of things that happened in, in childhood because, um, it's no, it's no way to live. It's no way to live. And thank you for, for sharing all of that stuff. Uh, this is There's just a section of this that I want to read. It was a shame and secret survey um, filled out by a woman who calls herself Cousin. And where is it? How do you feel after writing these things down, halfway turned on and halfway alone. And it's like, wow. When, when we're not in a satisfying relationship with somebody or we're, we're 
alone and we have a sexual release, maybe I should just talk, speak for myself. But oh my God, that is, is, you just described 90% of masturbatory experiences, halfway turned on and halfway alone. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, she didn't share much because I didn't read that that much of it, but I have I have a lot of surveys. Um, and this is an awful moment filled out by Gracie, and she writes, I have a health anxiety that mainly came out of a doctor telling me I probably had lung cancer. In the parentheses, I didn't. I had a minor infection. And then a friend dying of spinal cancer. I always forget that it was on her spine because she was actually a survivor of brain cancer before then. That's the bit that continues to scare me. Once at work, my head began burning like my skin was on fire, but there was no rash or anything to suggest an external cause. I thought the lights in the room were flickering on and off, but none of my colleagues had noticed, and my mouth and hands started to go numb. I knew rationally I was having a panic attack, but I couldn't shake the bigger irrational thought that a brain tumor was taking over. I didn't want to make a scene at work, so I hid my face behind my computer screen so that no one would see me. Over half an hour, the only thing I could do was move my arms and legs to convince myself I was alive and in control. Most of the memory is white light and noise, is white noise and light, nothing. But I snapped out of it when my arms and hands started miming driving a car and I made vroom vroom noises. I was so shocked by this mad reaction that I burst into laughter. I had to cover it with a cough and left the office for a bit, but it snapped me out of it. And for the only time ever, I loved having anxiety because of the insane effect it had on me. I laughed all day. The relief felt the same as finishing a marathon run, exhausted, but more alive than ever. Health anxiety is batshit nuts, and mostly I hate it, but I love that moment. That is so fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Nora, and... She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, She was raped by a male male friend uh, while she was drunk. And I'm just going to read some of what was going through her head as as she was uh, experiencing this. Um, I was really too uncomfortable. Uh, I, I believe uh, she woke up um, I think she came out of a sleep and somebody was was on top of her. Um, I finally came to and opened my eyes, uh, 
but I see a faint light coming through the window and feel hands moving my breast around. My shame is as follows. I don't register this as unusual and I don't react. I go limp, close my eyes, and pretend I'm asleep. In the back of my head, a whisper starts. The person puts their hands down my pants and the voice in my head gets louder. I'm waiting for the alcohol to take me back under to where I'm not aware this is happening. And I tell myself the voice in my head is saying that this is not happening. So I stay limp until he penetrates me and begins to rub his lips against my breasts. I finally hear the voice clearly say, this is happening, and I don't know what happens from there. I think I pushed away, but I can't be sure that's right. Maybe I started to shake because thinking about it and writing this makes me shake. Maybe I began to cry. When I could feel my body again, it felt like I had been crying. And then I'm going to skip forward. Um, I had locked it away almost immediately, and though I tried for several hours as the sun rose, I could not get it to resurface. That day, I would tell one of my other friends. He confronted my assailant for me and advised me as well as anyone could have. To press charge uh, or to not press charges, I regret what happened because not 12 hours following my rape, I forgave my rapist to his face. I absolved him of something and I wish I could take it back. I so dearly wanted to put the situation behind me and return to normalcy. It, so, it sounds like you were you were trying to relieve him of discomfort instead of it, it coming from like an organic place inside you. Uh, had I known I would never be normal again, I would never have allowed him the opportunity. Uh, my rapist and I had been in a platonic friendship for six years before he raped me and had known each other since we were children. I feel like I had to forgive him that he made a genuine mistake and convinced myself he had not meant to hurt me intentionally. I forgave him and told very few people what he had done. In hindsight, I think he was lonely, wanted to elevate our platonic bond into a romantic one, saw the opportunity to instigate, instigate a, oops, we had sex when we were drunk, Here's a wacky idea. Let's be in a relationship now, LOL, situation, and took advantage of it. I think he intended to wake me up, hoping I would then reciprocate his advances. Because I went limp and did nothing until whatever I did, that was clearly a sign of non-consent. There was no sexual, quote, accident to spin into the relationship he wanted. This version of possibility hurts especially because it means he conspired to break up the happy relationship I had been in for over a year so he could pursue one with me. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about taking all of my Adderall just to see what would happen. It's reckless and stupid, which is probably why I think about it. I have similar thoughts about my sleeping meds. When I had my wisdom teeth removed, I thought about taking all of my Vicodin at once. I remember having to say to myself out loud through the cotton in my mouth, you would die, you fucking idiot, just to make the thought go away. I think I'm a, I'm half a teaspoon of willpower away from becoming addicted to cocaine or heroin. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being unreal, 
unrealistically beautiful. I'll look at pictures of women who've had tons of plastic surgery and imagine myself being them. In my fantasies, I'm never myself. I'm always someone else, someone who looks so dramatically different from me, someone whose body is designed for sexual pleasure. This fantasy goes so far that I imagine myself as these women with the whole, quote, bimbo airhead porn star personality. Sharing that makes me feel hopeless. I wish I could be intimate with others without having a panic attack, and I think that sexual frustration manifests in a bimbo fetish because in that fantasy, everything about my body and personality is designed for sexual fulfillment. In reality, I don't want to get tons of plastic surgery or be treated like a bimbo. I just want to enjoy having sex. But this fantasy makes me feel shitty because a lot of that fetish is inherently degrading towards women. I essentially fantasize about becoming a living sex doll, and that is just so far away from who I actually am and what I actually want. Side note, this is obviously personal, but I don't want anyone anywhere to feel kink-shamed. The context of kinks, fetishes, and fantasies is personal, and I understand that perfectly healthy people have this fantasy and fetish. I'm not one of them. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you have been able to. I wish I could tell my rapist what he did to me and the real lasting effects of his actions because he has no idea the consequences of what he's done. I can't tell him because it's pointless. But is it? Is it pointless for you, for your feelings? And I'm not suggesting one way or the other, but if you think it's pointless for him, talking with him, it it should all be it should be all about your feelings and what you need. That's my, that's my thought. Because he made the decision to do that to you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I didn't count the seconds when people hugged me. I wish I could kiss someone without forgetting how to breathe. Have you shared these things with others? No, most people don't know I was raped. Those that do don't talk to me anymore. My boyfriend understands that I panic, but it hurts to tell him how it feels. I cry a lot, and I feel like he feels guilty for making me cry when we talk about it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Frustrated. I'm crying. I just want to be normal. I also feel somewhat reassured. A lot of this stuff I've never articulated so clearly, even to my therapists. I've never told anyone, not even my therapists, about my fantasies and the shame I have about them because I thought I was just a perverted sicko. Writing it down made me realize there are pretty obvious reasons as to why I have those fantasies, and I think I'll be able to tell my therapist about it now. Uh, Is there anything you would like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish I could say it gets easier, but it really doesn't if you don't seek professional help. And I know it's scary. I've been in therapy for over two years, and I think I've talked about intimacy only a handful of times because I'm always saying, controlling my depression, anxiety, ADHD is more important. And that's why two years later, I still can't be touched. The idea of finally getting help for my intimacy issues is so scary, it makes me feel nauseous. But it's not like I'm ever going to feel, quote, ready, and you might not either. It's not worth putting off your happiness for some abstract feeling of readiness. Your best bet is to voice your fears of recovery to a professional. Amen. And I would also add in a support group because um, 
there is something about the camaraderie of people who understand, who share traumatic experiences that is really, really healing. And um, if you go to org, that's the Rape and Incest National Network, uh, you can find find all kinds of resources for uh, support groups and therapy if you have ever, at any point in your life, uh, experienced uh, unwanted uh, sexual contact. I'm probably... I'm definitely paraphrasing that, but um, go to rainn.org. And uh, thank you so much for filling it out. That that survey really um, moved me. When it, when I read a survey and somebody has an epiphany during it, and especially when there are emotions attached to it, um, it's such a powerful moment for me to to read. Uh, because I feel, um, I suppose the egotistical part in me feels like I had a tiny hand in helping um, bring this moment forward, uh, this moment of forward motion in their in their life. But it's more that I I feel so lucky to have a front row seat to people's inner lives and vulnerability, um, that they trust me enough to go to the website and go through the ordeal of filling out the stuff that pains them most or that they hide most deeply. And thank you to, to everybody that, that does that. I have uh, one more awfulsome moment and a happy moment. And this is the awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself damaged, but my undies are clean. And he writes, a number of weeks ago, I was walking to my cousin's place down the street from me. Along the way, I encountered a couple of kids playing. One kid almost ran into me as the other yelled, hey, look out for the hobo. (laughs) WTF? It took a couple of seconds for me to realize the kid was referring to me. I was the hobo. Now, I'll admit I wasn't wearing my Sunday best and I probably needed a shave, but to be a grown adult, humbled by some kid calling me a hobo was a bit jarring, definitely insulting. But I kept my cool, despite wanting to throttle the little prick, and just went about my business. But that event has stuck with me since and I took it harshly. But the kid was right. I look like a slob. Thanks to years of struggle with depression, I had gotten to a point where I wasn't taking much pride in my appearance. Anyway, since the incident, I've gone out of my way to look a little more presentable. Nothing dramatic, just a few things incorporated into my routine so that I can hold my head a bit higher and hopefully avoid such embarrassment in the future. Who knows, I might even get hit on like in the old days. So I guess I have to sort of thank that kid for having a big mouth and no shame for being a little asshole. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Lauren. And she writes, uh, Upon forgetting to take my happy pills last night, I had a pretty serious mental breakdown on the way to work this morning. My brain started me 
startled me with the sudden urge to take my own life, a very familiar yet deeply disturbing feeling. I even felt my hand itching to turn on my blinker and pull into the local Walmart, thinking about how easy it would be to buy a rope and end my pain then and there. But these suicidal feelings only added to the mess of self-loathing thoughts looping through my head. I was in a dark place. I just sat there in my parked car at work, hyperventilating, punching myself repeatedly, wailing so hard my breath steamed up the windows. Wow, that is that is a what a picture you have painted in that that moment. And I've read so many surveys of people crying in their cars at work. That is oh. Continuing, uh, when it came time to clock in for my shift, I counted backwards from 10 and forced myself to get my shit together, an old trick of mine, however childish it might be. I hurried through the door with my head down so my co-workers wouldn't see my puffy red eyes and tear-stained cheeks. I mumbled a quick good morning and headed straight for the bathroom to isolate myself before my shift started. I work with dogs. My job is to supervise a large group of about 20 pups and make sure they stay safe while playing, uh, while they play. Although it sounds like an extremely rewarding job, and it definitely is, it can also be really hard on my anxiety sometimes, so I was not looking forward to this shift. Anyway, before going to set up for the day, I was stopped in the hallway by my boss. I mentally prepared myself for a lecture on coming to work looking like I got pepper sprayed in the face, but was pleasantly surprised to see her reach into her pocket and pull out an envelope with my name on it. My boss explained that a customer noticed me giving their dog extra love and attention the other day. This particular dog is very timid, and I can deeply sympathize with that, so I had gone out of my way to make sure... Um, so I had gone out of my way to make sure that the dog was comfortable. And this note reminded me that my existence is important, despite what my fucked up brain wanted me to believe. I felt so appreciated and noticed. Even now, as I sit in the coffee shop hours later, I'm still on cloud nine. I want to dance and spin and throw my arms up in the air, screaming my gratitude to the whole world. The funny thing is, these people have no idea how much of an impact their small gesture had on me. I'm grinning ear to ear as I sip my coffee and type this out. So that's my happy moment. God, I sound stupid ending it that way. I guess I just had I just had to share this experience with the people I think would appreciate it most. That is such a great moment. That is such a great moment. And I, I'm sorry to be on my soapbox about support groups, but I get those moments all the time in support groups because we tell each other what we love about each other. At least in my groups, we do. And we support each other. And those are the feelings that get me out of bed. The, those, those feelings of belonging and meaning something to other people and you know, I'm wor I'm working on meaning something to myself and being okay regardless of what people think of me. But that is that is a tough road that takes years, and I am probably a long way from being there. But along the way, it's really nice to have other people in my life 
that are fighting that same battle. So we can laugh about it and cry about it and uh, eat food while we talk about it and help each other. And I hope you got something out of this 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 episode. And um, no matter what you're going through, there's somebody else that feels like you do. And asking for help, reaching out, opening up can be the best decision that you that you ever make. And just remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up.